Yeah, that's right. That's a Friday song right that there. <laughs> certainly is. Good morning. Yeah. December 1st, Lloyd. I know already. And before you know it, it'll be Christmas. I know. The Christmas music is already playing. In the, the lobby of the Fisher Building, we're hearing it. Some good ones, too, though. Yeah. Guy yeah. Gordon taking the Friday off. He deserves it. He works so hard. I think yeah. he's up north. And he's listening. You know he's listening, right? Yeah. I said, okay. Dad's out for the day. <laughs> so the kids are playing. <laughs> Running amok. Um, uh, we're so happy that you decided to spend uh, part of your morning with us. Uh, weather-wise, expect some rain today. A high around 47. It's a balmy 45. I was out walking Sasha this morning, and uh, it felt pretty good out there. Uh, yeah, driving in, I thought, oh, it's just rain. The commute will be fine. It was kind of, I don't know, you could barely see on the road, so be careful. Yeah, and people are still speeding, too. Of course They're they are. flying out there. So, yeah. you know, a lot of news to get to this morning. Jamie, so let's get started. Uh, what's going on the latest with uh, Israel and Hamas? Lloyd, fighting has resumed in Gaza after the seven-day temporary ceasefire between Israel and Hamas expired. During the temporary ceasefire, more than 100 Israeli hostages were released in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Airstrikes and gunfire reported in the enclave after the announcement. Sirens going off in southern Israel. Talks, though, to renew the pause in fighting continue, a Qatar mediator said. The Israeli military now urged residents in parts of southern Gaza to evacuate, signaling that they're going to resume the war down there. Antony Blinken, the U.S., has said be careful with civilian uh, deaths in that area. So we'll have to wait and see on how that all progresses. Meanwhile, a New York Times article, Lloyd, mm-hmm. Israeli officials obtained Hamas's battle plan for the October 7th terrorist attack more than a year before it happened. And the New York Times reviewed documents, emails and interviews. So what did, did they just forget? Well, uh, you know, how did they if you had that plan, how do you sneak up on people like they did on October They didn't 7th? believe that Hamas had the capacity to fulfill it. It's a 40-page document. The Israeli authorities codenamed it Jericho Wall, and it outlined point by point exactly the kind of devastating invasion that led to the deaths of about 1,200 people. And there was one analyst in the article who was trying to sound the alarm bells Mm -hmm. and say, hey, I also believe they're practicing to do this, but everyone just believed that it couldn't happen. Because so. what they thought that maybe they just didn't have the capacity or the money to fund it. Correct. They didn't They didn't think about Iran or anything like that. Correct. And wow. so as more and more things come out, you're going to certainly, I don't know, That's there's not... going to be a lot of uh, discussion and, about what went wrong. And the people, you know, who lost family members. Of course. Because of this. You and know. the people, the hostages that are still there. Absolutely. As this fighting continues. Well, uh, as you know, Republican uh, Florida governor and 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis and Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom faced off in Georgia uh, on Fox host Sean Hannity's a great red versus blue state debate. (laughs) Governor uh, DeSantis, you know, they talked about all kinds of subjects. And one of the subjects, of course, that came up was abortion. And Governor DeSantis accused Governor Newsom of supporting abortions without restrictions and using taxpayer funds to provide the service. I think that what the position that we have from the modern left, including in California, is that they will take your tax dollars and they will fund abortion all the way to the moment of birth. Governor Newsom accused Governor DeSantis of supporting a six-week abortion ban in Florida. So extreme is your ban that criminalizes women and criminalizes doctors that even Donald Trump said it was too extreme. 
And speaking of crime, uh, Governor DeSantis accused Governor Newsom and far-left Democrats of being soft on crime and caring more about the criminals. They have chosen in California to put the interests of the criminals over public safety. Uh, They treat... Uh, They're easier on sex offenders. They're easier on all these crimes that are leading to a collapse in the quality of life. And Newsom attacked DeSantis for his gun policies, accusing the Florida governor of ignoring pleas from parents of the Parkland High School shooting victims for more gun laws. You made it easier for felons to get guns without background checks, without any training. These people pleaded with the parents and the families to get tough on gun safety. And again, you made it easier for felons. But, Jamie, bottom line is that here you have uh, these two who one is running for president. The other, you know, kind of said to have, be having a shadow campaign. <laughs> and, you know, it's yeah. like, but really, why? Why was this happening? I, I don't know, Lloyd. I turned it on last night. and There's a lot of fighting. And I'm just like, what is the point here? Because uh, DeSantis is losing by a mile, if you believe the polls. Newsom says he's not running. In fact, Newsom sort of said that. In the debate, uh, Jason, if you could play play the Newsom bite, I, I'm the one. That, I'm the only guy here. that's a border state governor. You're trolling folks and trying to find migrants to play political games to try to get some news and attention so you can out Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. Wow, that's kind of the point I was thinking when I turned it on. What is the point of this? Well, and and I also think, uh, you know, Gavin Newsom was on a channel that, you know, was going to say he was terrible anyway. And I would have thought the same thing if those two were on MSNBC and it was Rachel Maddow or or Scarborough doing the moderation. I would feel the same way. They're they're in a hostile area and they're going to all because when they did the analysis afterwards, everybody said that Newsom had an F and DeSantis was an A. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All right. Let's just move on to better news. Oh, wait, this is upsetting. The no win November. The Pistons lost last night to the oh. New York Knicks, 118-112. That's the franchise record 16th consecutive loss. 16th. They did not win a game in November, Lloyd. Uh, they have not won a game since a victory over Chicago on October 28th. And back then they were 2-1. and one. Oh. God. So, so and Kate Cunningham had 31 points. Killian Hayes had 23. They are scoring points here or there, but as a the group, defense. as a group, it's not working. They're not meshing. Well, Jalen Brunson for the other team had 42 points. So no, no defense, Lloyd. Well, we have other sports teams that we can say yeah <laughs> about. We got a lot yeah, of sports. They, they, they suck. Yeah, thank you, Lomas. <laughs> thank Appreciate you, Lomas. that. Uh, yeah, the Lions are playing this weekend, as is the uh, U of M, uh, the Wolverines, and the Red Wings played last night. Yeah, Lloyd Lions on the road against the Saints. Hopefully, we could get back on track after that Thanksgiving Day debacle. The Red Wings did win. We still don't have Patrick Kane skating and playing with the team. He's practicing. Okay. But, yes, they beat the Chicago Blackhawks and uh, Michigan. There's a big game there, 23-point favorites uh, over Iowa in the Big Ten championship game. And they thought they were going to play against former Michigan quarterback Cade McNamara, mm-hmm. but he's injured, so he's not going to play. So a different quarterback's going to play. But he McNamara was on a podcast recently, uh-huh. and he refused to say the Michigan Wolverines' name. Listen to this. Well, I think this week specifically, I'm not just getting Deacon ready. I'm getting the entire team as much okay. as I can because, I mean, I know so much about that other team Yeah. that from a defensive standpoint, from an offensive standpoint, 
I'm just doing everything I possibly can from an entire team standpoint to just let these guys know everything that I possibly know. That other team. Yeah. So what? (laughs) He certainly is aggrieved, I guess, in how everything went down with J.J. becoming the quarterback. So he goes to Iowa, and he's trying to now get Deacon Hill, the backup quarterback, ready to play the Michigan Wolverines. But we know what's going to happen. Exciting uh, exciting things this weekend in sports. And speaking of sports, you know, guys, you, you guys know I like boxing. Okay, yes. but I like boxing in the ring, not outside the ring. And the man who Mike Tyson pummeled during a wild fight on a plane last year, he's demanding the boxer pay him nearly half a million dollars to avoid a future lawsuit. But the boxing legend's attorney, uh, he's adamant that this is just a shakedown and he's not going to get anything. A lawyer for Melvin Townsend, the punch victim, made the demands clear in a pre-litigation letter sent to Shapiro earlier this week. Um, he said his client simply was excited to see Mike Tyson on a flight and began discussing the marijuana industry and psychedelic mushrooms Mm-mm. with him. And Mike became agitated and attacked him. No, that's not what happened. Did you see the video? I did see the video. That is not what happened. <clears throat> no, it's not. And <laughs> Tyson's, you know, he wasn't he wasn't charged criminally. But, you know, Tyson, on the other hand, says, well, he was effing with me and so he was he was like two feet away from his face he wouldn't leave him alone and then at the end mike punched him yeah so it's a it's a shakedown but i mean i don't advocate for no violence, violence on airplanes or anywhere else but just saying it is six fourteen, and coming up we're going to be talking to a veterinarian uh to talk about this uh, mysterious dog virus you know 14 states have reported cases of these sick dogs and symptoms similar to kennel cough but the dogs are not responding to the usual treatments. We'll talk to this veterinarian in just a moment as JR Morning continues at WJR. As experts try to find the cause and cure of the contagious mystery respiratory illness in dogs, some owners are rethinking their four legged friend's holiday accommodations. Uh, the uh, illness, which shows similar symptoms to a normal kennel cough but is resistant to the typical treatments, has been fatal in some cases, and as of Monday, the American Veterinary Medical Association has recorded cases in more than a dozen states across the country. Joining us now on the JR Morning Live line to talk about the mystery canine illness is Dr. Larry Lecce. He's president of the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association, and he's a veterinarian at Rimrock Farms in Plymouth. Dr. Lecce, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for having us. Having me. This this mystery illness almost seems like a dog version of COVID. What do you know about it so far? Well, it's it's not really COVID, but um, at this particular time, um, there have been um, cases throughout the country. Uh, there have not been any recorded cases in Michigan, according to the um, state veterinarian's office. Um, but it shows very similar signs to kennel cough. But the symptoms in this particular um, disease appear to be worse. You will have a dog with a severe cough. Uh, They may have a fever. They may be very lethargic. Um, They can have um, nasal discharges, and they can also have discharges in their eyes. And in many cases, these dogs don't want to eat. The thing that's different between this and some of the more uh, common causes of coughs in dogs is the severity of the cases. Um, The coughs are lasting um, six to eight weeks in many dogs, and unfortunately, they're not responding as quickly or as uh, well as we would like to to normal traditional treatments for um, similar diseases. 
Doctor, do you know if it's bacterial or viral, or are people trying to figure that out right now? They're still in the early stages of trying to determine that. Unfortunately, because it's such a new disease, um, there have been some original tests done in the state of Oregon where there have been um, most of the cases and also in New Hampshire. And we don't know whether or not it is a virus or it is a bacteria at this particular point. I like to just at this particular point call it a respiratory infectious disease because we don't know what the cause of it is. Doctor, is it, is, does it lead to pneumonia in dogs? In some cases, in very severe cases, it can um, lead to pneumonia and it can lead to um, uh, death, uh, unfortunately. Um, but a majority of the cases at this particular point have been more of a chronic illness, but in some cases it can go into pneumonia. Doctor, there's an article in the Free Press, and this woman has a dog. The cough started in September and lasts for more than a month. Mm-hmm. And she, talk, she took her dog in a bunch of times to the vet. Have you seen cases like that? Um, I have not yet. In my practice, I have seen um, a few cases of more of mild forms that I would suspect would possibly more be um, more of the traditional cases. But I personally have not seen a case yet. Dr. Letcher, you know it's holiday time. People are going to be heading out of town and, and may have to board their dog. Should that be avoided? Um, I think everything needs to be taken into perspective. Um, Unfortunately, um, you're going to see more cases in a kennel situation or in a dog care facility. Um, Everyone should do everything with caution, and they should do the most important thing that they can do at this particular point is vaccinate their dog um, for the particular diseases that we can treat. And it is probably better if they can find someone to take care of their dog in their home at this particular point. But I'm telling everybody not to panic and just do the most important things, which is to make sure that your dog is completely vaccinated, that if your dog is sick, keep it away from other dogs, um, and make sure that uh, you don't share the um, same bowls and uh, feeding bowls or um, food bowls at this time. That's probably as important as anything. So we're talking about it because there's a concern, but there's not panic because it hasn't technically reached our state yet? Right. That would be the best way to do that. Unfortunately, we don't know when it could show up, and it may not show up um, because at this particular point, we don't have any confirmed cases. Unfortunately, we really don't have a test to determine um, if this is this particular disease or not because we don't even know what the source of the um, infection is at this time. We're speaking with Larry Lecce, Dr. Larry Lecce. He's president of the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association. Doctor, let's see, when you say that the dog should be vaccinated, at this point, we don't know that maybe this mystery uh, illness could be some type of spinoff from one of those uh, uh, diseases that we're vaccinating against. So being vaccinated could help. Right, most definitely. And in in a lot of cases, vaccinations can um, prevent diseases in dogs, um, just like, you know, our regular things that we we get our flu shots. Uh, Dogs should get their flu shots. They should get their kennel cough shots. They should get their rabies vaccines. Um, That is probably the greatest um, form of prevention of diseases that we have available to us. Just overall, not specifically for this, just how do you keep your dog or pet safe this winter season, doctor? Um, 
the good nutrition, um, making sure that they're in good shape. They need exercise, just like us, they need exercise. They need their vaccinations, um, you know, and caution is the, is the best form of treatment. Um, you know, you just need to be diligent and make sure that your dog is healthy. It's got good nutrition. It, it, if they show any signs of illness of any type, whether it's intestinal or respiratory, make sure that you have a good established relationship with your veterinarian and take your dog in to get treated as soon as possible. The sooner you get there, the sooner the symptoms can be treated. Doctor, you know, this illness doesn't respond to usual treatments, but what about this uh, powerful human antibiotic I'm hearing about, chloramphenicol, I believe it is, that uh, said to have helped uh, this golden retriever out in California? Um, that is a very good antibiotic. Um, there are very specific antibiotics. You can do um, um, nasal cultures uh, and nasal swabs that can be sent into a lab, uh, just like they do for for people. You know, the, the the swabs that you do in the back of your throat when you're sick at the doctor's. We do that with dogs also. <clears throat> Excuse me, and um, that can help to determine what is the best antibiotic to treat for any particular disease. But this, that decision to give that medication should come from a vet and not from, you know, mom or dad. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That is a very good point that you just made. All right, Dr. Larry Lecce, he's president of the Michigan Veterinary Medical Association and veterinarian at Rimrock Farms in Plymouth. Dr. Lecce, it's a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for joining us this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, you know, I, I, I fear I have a, a small dog, and I'm a dog lover. Uh, my dog is a, um, is a multi-poo, mm. uh, and multis and poodle mix, and, uh, you know, and she's very rambunctious and, and everything. And, you know, I, I fear that the, the closest it's, it's been to Michigan, I believe, is Indiana and Illinois. So it's right there, but it hasn't yeah. crossed into Michigan yet. I think people might be a little leery of boarding their pets as they go away. Perhaps there'll be more dogs coming to Grandma's house. <laughs> Unless grandma has a dog who's not feeling well. Get ready. I don't know. This is a new stressor, I'm sure, for people with pets. But he said, don't panic. Just be vigilant. Keep an eye on your dog. So, Well, coming up, uh, we'll be uh, speaking with uh, David Hall. He's president of and CEO of Hall Financial. Home prices in Metro Detroit showing some resiliency among uh, high mortgage rates and recently notched the biggest year over year gains in any metro region in the nation. That's coming up as JR Morning continues on 760 WJR. The latest S&P CoreLogic Case-Shiller Index released Tuesday shows home prices in Metro Detroit at an all-time high in September and up 6.7% from a year earlier. That was the largest year-over-year increase among the 20 metro regions in the index. For some context, let's bring in David Hall, President and CEO of Hall Financial. Good morning, David. Hey, Jamie. Good morning. How are you today? I'm good. I want to talk to you about home prices in Detroit. What do these numbers mean for the regular buyer or seller? Well, you know, it's sort of good news, bad news. We, we said at the beginning of the year, and, and this year we were right, we said the two worst kept secrets in our business is that rates are going to go up and housing values are going to keep going up. And, you know, we were right on both. The reason that it's important to know that, it, that it's kind of unique is that typically in a scenario where rates have gone up as much as they have over the last two years, although in the last four or five weeks they've gone down, is that it was it's really hard to sustain pricing at the same level when rates are going up. But that's the kind of demand situation that there's been for homes. So this is all about low inventory. Pricing 
keeps going up because there's not a lot of inventory in the market. Uh, people are willing to uh, pay top dollar for homes. That's still the case today, although it's cooled off a little bit here in the fall and winter, uh, as opposed to where it was in the spring and summer. But we're going to continue to see pricing, although I, I, I think a little bit, not a lot, go up or stay steady because of this low inventory situation and people that uh, want to buy a house need to pay top dollar. There's just simply more buyers than there are sellers in the market. David, when you compare Detroit to the other major markets like San Diego and New York and Chicago and, and Boston, you know, what are the specific elements that you think that made Detroit's year over year gain stand out? Well, Lloyd, good morning to you too. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing because we've seen like, uh, the West Coast take a little bit of a hit uh, this year, and the East Coast continue to to move up. You know, states like Florida are just on fire in terms of appreciation. And so there's been a lot of, like, differences regionally. I think that specifically in Michigan, the reason why, in my mind, it's kind of a Goldilocks situation, you know, not too cold, not too hot, just right, is because it's just gone up a little bit. I don't think you ever – nobody wants to see housing values in a, in a typical scenario – going way up, going way down. I think modest increases like what we've seen in our area is a good thing. I think that there's a lot of reasons for that. But I think that, you know, the Midwest in general has been sort of in this nice period of like not going up too much. And I don't think it really could, given affordability issues, especially, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Mm -hmm. get a little crazier in terms of what values are like compared to the Midwest. Our our values are a little bit more modest. So, um, yeah, I think I think that in general terms, you've seen a lot of differences regionally across the country. There are a lot of reasons for that, including population growth and, and, and other factors. But again, it comes down to supply demand issue. And we're kind of in a in what I consider to be a good spot where it's not a problem uh, because it's just a modest gain in my view. So Detroit homes on the upswing, but still significantly below the national average when you're thinking of buying. My problem is we locked into a really low mortgage rate and we do want more space. We have this new baby. But when at what point will it make sense for homeowners with like a three percent fixed rate to sell their home and move? Yeah, it's uh, it's a million dollar question. And a lot of people are facing that scenario. And we were all gifted this great market in 2021 that in my 27 years in the business, I never thought I would see that. I mean, that was just an incredible opportunity for so many people to lock in an incredibly low fixed rate. So I think what happens is that a, um, as rates continue to come down and I think they will more next year, it becomes more manageable to maybe move from a rate that's in the threes to a rate in the fives. I think that as rates touched on 8% a couple months ago, Everybody was like, I'm not, I'm not leaving a 3% rate for an 8% rate unless I really have to. I think as time goes on and as life happens to people, I think that given a smaller spread between the rate they're at now and the rate that they could go to, there will start to be less and less fixation on the rate that people are at. But I still think it's so new. We're within a year and a half, two years of everybody being able to lock in and, and capture all these savings. I think that we just need to continue to see rates decline. I don't think they need to go back to 3%, but I think that rates in the fives is going to be enough of a motivator for folks to say, you know what, I'm not going to stay here just because I've got a rate that's 2% less. But I think when the spread is 4 or 5%, I think there's uh, a 
hesitation and pause, and certainly for a good reason. The mm-hmm. Fed is most likely going to lower either in the spring or the summer next year, depending on economic conditions. And I think we'll start to see some more relief, although over the last four or five weeks, mortgage interest rates have gone down 200 basis points. A lot of people don't know you can get a rate in the sixes right now. That's been a little underreported. And uh, I wanted to get that out today as well so that folks know that the rates aren't at eight. Rates are actually in the high sixes. Well, that's good. And you like to say marry the home, date the rate. <laughs> well, that, that, that's absolutely right. I mean, I think so. So one thing that people are struggling with is, hey, I want to move, um, but I, I want to wait for rates to go down. Well, that's the same strategy that like tens of thousands of other Michiganders have. So I don't think you everybody's going to love a strategy where you're going to be 30th in line to buy a house. And that's why I just think it's been compelling potentially if your situation is right. If you buy now, you can always refinance when rates go down. And I think it's a pretty good bet in the next 12 to 18 months that mortgage interest rates are going to go down. So for folks that have been thinking about moving, it is a little counterintuitive to go from 3% to in the sixes. But when rates dip into the fives, there's going to be a line out of every door in Metro Detroit of home buyers that want that home. And so it may be a good counter strategy to buy now and refinance later. We've had a lot of folks that are excited about the opportunity to buy now and not have to waive inspections and waive appraisals like you might have to next spring and summer as rates come down. Well, David Hall, people can come to Hall Financial, get educated on all of this. You say maybe it's not a bad time to sell and buy a new place right now. David, thank you for joining us this morning. Appreciate it. Great to be with you guys. Have a great weekend. Yeah, um, you know, it, 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 I, I understand exactly what you're talking about, Jamie. You know, if you have a, a, a low interest rate right now and it's 3%, yeah. it's like... Mm. We like that payment. Yeah, and even yeah. though, you know, rates are at 6 you could buy and... You can buy at six and you can you know, hope that those rates are going to continue to come down and, you, you know, it won't be as bad. But but you can't wait forever. You cannot. And so if you have someone like a David Hall that you could go talk to and just get some numbers, it can't hurt. Right, yep. Lloyd? That's right. Um, also, we have coming up uh, Tom Slusser. He's a chief of mobility innovation for the city of Detroit. We're going to talk about that. Let's talk about that roadway street. again. Oh, my God. Listen, it's making national news. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, on 14th Street, right outside the uh, central uh, Michigan Central uh, Depot. Station, yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's amazing. And what it says for the future of charging your vehicle while you're driving. I mean, that kind of gets away from the anxiety of people charging when they're on a trip and they're thinking about where am I going to charge up? Yeah. And I think it's good for the future. Like this is a little test, little test run here in Detroit and then see what that could mean for others or who want an electric car perhaps, but don't have an, a garage you could charge on your way. It, it's very interesting. And we're going to talk about that coming up at 649. I did just want to make yeah. a mention since I'm a mom now and I care about all this stuff. It seems like there's a pneumonia outbreak in Ohio. And wow. my daughter has been sick for this whole week, sort of fatigue and fever. And we've taken her in, of course. But the Warren County Health District has recorded 142 cases of childhood pneumonia since August, which exceeds the average number seen in the county. So they said this is not new. This is not a new respiratory disease, but rather a large uptick in the number of pneumonia cases normally seen at one time. And that's in Ohio. So I'll certainly keep an eye on on my daughter and I think others should as well. So we're going to come back and talk about that really cool street up in Corktown <laughs> on JR Morning.
We've been hearing about in-road EV charging tech for a number of years, including tests from Renault and Stellantis. Now the city of Detroit is reported to be the first installation of wireless charging in a public roadway in the United States. A new quarter-mile recharging stretch of road in Corktown opened on 14th Street, right outside of the Michigan Central Station, where Ford uh, is building an electric and autonomous vehicle campus. Joining us on the JR Morning Live line is Tim Slusser. He's Chief of Mobility Innovation for the City of Detroit. Tim, it's good to talk with you this morning. Thank you very much for having me, and good morning. Good morning. Hey, provide, give us like a little overview of the, the innovation behind this wireless charging public roadway. Yeah, so it's very, very similar to what you're experiencing uh, with your cell phones, right? So if you remember uh, a number of years ago, um, you know, early cell phone technology allowed for wireless charging. It was on a few different devices. Uh, and then over the course of a few years, you know, every single cell phone that you buy now has wireless charging capabilities. So uh, we're very early in the stages of that type of technology for automotive. Uh, and so right now, um, you know, we are at the stages of testing out, um, you know, kind of these, these first generation technologies uh, for the road. Um, but uh, we're really excited to have that capability here in Detroit. So there's nowhere uh, in the country except Detroit that you can do this on a public roadway. Uh, we think that's going to create a lot of opportunity for us here in the city of Detroit. Uh, Tim, this is certainly making national news, which I think is great. We had Stefan Tonger on yesterday from Electrion. He was saying the obvious, you know, people were concerned about infrastructure. This sort of takes care of that. But there's an affordability aspect of it, because if you could charge while you're driving, you don't need a, a, a charging station at your house, let's say. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's certain aspects of this that could impact affordability. Um, but to be honest with you, I think it's a little bit too early to, you know, say that this is something that will unlock electrification for the masses. Um, you know, what this is really doing is it's giving us the opportunity to attract businesses that are developing these types of solutions, um, you know, at this point in time. So uh, this is actually giving Detroit the opportunity to be uh, a focal point for these developments, to bring those solutions and those companies here uh, and to, uh, you know, give opportunities to Detroiters to participate in those developments, to have that experience uh, so we're going to be at the forefront of this development, much like we were, you know, the first mile, uh, full mile of paved road, the first tri-colored four-directional stoplight, uh, and many other advanced transportation innovations. This is another one, uh, you know, started here in the city of Detroit, uh, first in the country. Tim, uh, you know, when you had the demonstration, I think they were showcasing the Ford E-Transit van, and it was charging while it was in motion. Talk, I'm, I'm going to get a little nerdy here. Talk about that. It's a rubber-coated copper coil that's under the road surface that facilitates this wireless charging. Can you explain that a little bit? Yes. I mean, the, the, the fundamentals are pretty basic, right? You're, you're transferring energy wirelessly via uh, magnetics. Um, but, you know, in order to do that while a vehicle is in motion uh, is extremely complex, right? This is a lot of... Um, communication between the vehicle and the roadway and controls to get the timing right and, and all these sorts of things. So it's really a marvelous uh, and, and uh, amazing technology. Um, so, you know, we are, uh, again, at, at the very beginning of this, uh, and we believe that this could uh, it could allow us to to view our road in a different way, right? How, how could this technology help uh, decarbonize our 
uh, parcel delivery, for example, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you think about UPS, FedEx, and Amazon uh, when they're you know delivering their packages all around the country. You know how could they do that in Detroit? You know in the future in a way that they can do zero emissions, right? And they don't need to have a big battery on their vehicles uh, because every time they stop, it automatically starts charging, right? Mm-hmm. And keeps that vehicle running all day long. Uh, so that there's no issues with the range. And then how does that then apply to our transit system and individual passenger cars? And, you know, it, this technology can actually be applicable to many, many, many different use cases. So that's a lot of what we want to now go test since this technology is live in the city of Detroit. So we're exploring a lot of those use cases in partnership with uh, Electrion and the team at Michigan Central, you know, Next Energy, Jacobs Engineering, and um, New Lab and, and MDOT, you know, all the partners that were part of making this, uh, this project come to life. Tim Slesser, Chief of Mobility Innovation for the city of Detroit. Detroit that's who we're talking to. Uh, Tim, you just sort of mentioned it. My question was going to be, how cool is it to have this innovation hub within the city of Detroit that ideas like this can come out and uh, more ideas can stem from that? It's extremely exciting. You know, this this is who we are in Detroit. This is what the city of Detroit has been to this industry for so long, right? With the 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 land of firsts, if you will. Um, and so, you know, to us, this is just um, it's it's really exciting. But it's also more of business as usual. We're not. Um, uh, we're, we're, I should say we are used to, uh, you know, doing these types of things uh, first in the country. So, you know, to us, this is uh, a little, it's exciting, but again, it's, it's kind of a business as usual feeling because uh, we're used to doing things first. We're used to, um, you know, bending the envelope and, and testing these new types of solutions. So it's really exciting in that we get to help set the standard for what this should and could look like across the country. Uh, and that's part of what we're really excited about. So, you know, we, uh, we're, we're looking to see how much this technology can, um, you know, impact the various use cases that I mentioned and many other use cases, uh, you know, like Uber and Lyft and things like that as well. Um, you know, how does this play into the future of transportation uh, and making clean mobility more accessible to everybody? Tim Slusser, Chief of Mobility Innovation for the City of Detroit. We thank you and we appreciate you coming on and providing us some good information on this new innovation. Thank you so much for having me and, uh, you know, uh, have a great rest of your day. You too. You have a great weekend. This is uh, awesome. But he's right, though. I mean, Detroit. Well, it's just me and Jamie this morning on a Friday. Good morning, December 1st. It is the weekend. Finally. And dad's not here. <laughs> we call him dad. Dad's away. <laughs> but he's probably listening to us. Oh, yeah. He, he is. I'm, yeah. sh- I'm sure I'll get a text message or something, you know, to let him, let us know that he is listening. So we got to be on our best behavior. Of course. Uh, a lot of Were things Were those going two on. guys yesterday on the debate stage on their best behavior? Uh, well, not really. Uh, Republican Florida governor and 2024 presidential candidate Ron DeSantis and Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom faced off in Georgia on Fox host Sean Hannity's Great Red versus Blue State debate. And they talked about several, several topics, one of those topics being about immigration. And DeSantis accused Newsom and other Democrats of lying about the surge of immigrants arriving from the southern border. This is a guy that says the Biden administration is not lying to the public about the border. They go to the White House uh, briefing room every day. They say the border's secure. They are lying to you. 
We know that that's not true. Governor Newsom accusing Governor DeSantis of lying to the 36 migrants and asylum seekers he flew to Sacramento back in June. I met with those migrants that you lied to under false pretense. That kind of gamesmanship using human beings as pawns, I think, is disqualified. Now, the subject of homelessness came up in the debate as well, and Governor DeSantis criticized California's homeless crisis. California does have freedoms uh, that some people don't, uh, that other states don't. You have the freedom to defecate in public in California. You have the freedom to pitch a tent on Sunset Boulevard. You have the freedom to create a homeless encampment under a freeway and even light it on fire. But Governor Newsom promoted his efforts to curb homelessness in California. We are investing unprecedented resources, more accountability. We've gotten 68,000 people off the streets, close to 6,000 encampments we've gotten off the streets. We'll have more on this red and blue debate Uh, next hour. And also we'll be talking with uh, Jessica Rosenthal. She's a Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor 735 and get more in depth on that. But in the meantime, we still have uh, Israel, Gaza hostages. What's going on over there? Uh, Lloyd, well, fighting has resumed in Gaza after a seven day temporary ceasefire. During that ceasefire, more than 100 Israeli hostages were released in exchange for 240 Palestinian prisoners in Israeli jails. Now that the ceasefire is over, airstrikes and gunfire were reported in the Palestinian enclave after the announcement, while sirens sounded in southern Israel. The Israel military is now urging residents in parts of southern Gaza to evacuate, signaling that the resumption of the war would mean a broader assault in that area. Uh, It says Hamas leaders are hiding alongside the masses of civilians, Lloyd, who have Mm -hmm. fled south at Israel's urging. But, you know, the question is, where will they go? go? Where will they go? Yeah. So um, Qatar is still working to try and get some more of those hostages released. But uh, for now, the fighting has returned. And I also I think I saw something where they said that Hamas is starting to run out of people to give up. To well, keep they only that... want to give women and children. Uh-huh. And so now they have mostly men and Israeli soldiers and they feel the price for them is more. So, yeah. And I haven't gotten an update, you know, about yeah. the Bibas family. The Hamas says that they have been killed, and uh, no one has confirmed that and yet. And was killed by yeah. a, some type of Israeli Israeli strike. bomb, yeah. Okay. But Israel would say overall Hamas is the one who are responsible for Well, a New York appellate court, Jamie, has reinstated a gag order prohibiting former President Donald Trump and attorneys from making public statements about the courtroom staff in the ongoing $250 million civil fraud trial. Judge Arthur Ergeron originally issued the order barring Trump from making public statements about his court staff after Trump made numerous comments about the clerk, who Trump says is biased against him. Hundreds of threats against Ergeron and the law clerk were made public last week. Ergeron's clerk has received 20 to 30 calls per day to her personal cell phone and 30 to 50 messages daily on social media platforms and two personal email addresses uh, and her two personal email addresses. The appeals court paused the gag order earlier this month, but yesterday said it should be restored while the official appeal is pending. During the break in the trial yesterday morning, Ergeron announced the appeals court ruling reinstating that gag order. Okay, and how about in the House of Representatives, Lloyd? They're going to try for the third time to expel Representative George Santos from Congress among 
those slew of accusations against him, including campaign finance abuses. Yeah, and he continues his refusal to uh, say he was going to resign ahead of that expulsion vote, instead arguing that he's being bullied in the wake of the scathing ethics report on his conduct. And he had a news conference yesterday outside the Capitol, and he remained defiant as he lashed out at other members of Congress, and he was pressed on why he won't resign. Because if I leave, they win. If I leave... The bullies take place. This is bullying. Santos previously announced that he would not seek re-election following the release of the damaging report from the House Ethics Committee. Now, he says he's going to introduce a resolution to expel Democratic Representative Jamal Bowman of New York. That's the one who pulled the fire alarm when uh, there was not an emergency. Bowman has pleaded guilty to a misdemeanor charge for falsely triggering the fire alarm. Bowman responded with a statement saying this is just another meaningless stunt in his long history of cons, antics, and outright fraud. Well, House Speaker Mike Johnson has said of the upcoming vote, they're going to let people vote their conscience. And I don't think, you know, people are in support of what George Santos did. I think they're concerned that he wasn't convicted and what precedent that would set if they expel him. So we're going to wait and see what happens on that later today, Lloyd. Uh, The Michigan Public Service Commission, I just want to let you guys know that they will be weighing in on two major cases, uh, a DTE rate increase request and its authority over the controversial Line 5 pipeline. They're going to have a meeting today in Lansing, and the board will meet at 1 p.m. On its agenda, DTE's electric request for $622 million in rate increases for its customers over the next year. That would raise an average customer's bill by about 12 bucks, which is about a 14% increase from the previous bill. And also the other major piece of the commission's agenda is Canadian Energy Company's Enbridge's request uh, for approval to replace the Line 5 pipeline, which carries fuel under the Straits of Mackinac. So that's today at 1 o'clock. All right. I believe we have a business beat, Lloyd. We do. It's uh, time now for WJR's business beat. Here is Jeff Sloan. He's founder and CEO of Startup Nation to spotlight the entrepreneurial tech and startup community on WJR. Good morning. Good morning. Nothing like a good old entrepreneurial success story to get our engines racing this week. And we've got one right here on the business beat. This story Well, one could argue it's pretty amazing because it involves a restaurant startup right here in Detroit that in the face of all of the economic pressures and labor shortages and higher operating costs, they're not only succeeding, but expanding, having just opened up a second location of their startup known as Breadless. The founders are husband and wife team Mark Howland, co-founder and CEO, and L.C. Howland, the company's chief marketing officer. Breadless is riding a wave of a major healthy eating trend today, featuring an extensive menu based on 100% gluten-free. The company started in 2019 by selling their sandwiches out of pop-ups and local gyms. Then they opened up their first brick-and-mortar location in 2020 in downtown Detroit and have just opened a second location in Rochester Hills. And I asked them why they felt Detroit was the perfect place to get started. Yeah, for me, I think there's something to being a Detroit-founded business. We want to someday be like the Ford, be like the Chinola, really pay homage to such a great city with such a resurgence of industry and business, food scene, et cetera. And then we were just really embraced by the Detroit community. Tech Town Detroit, Detroit Venture Partners, and so many others have really propelled us and created this club of breathless lovers. We started in Detroit by selling sandwiches out of brown paper bags in local gyms. And as LC said, the community was embracing us. They were leaving notes for us at the gyms asking where they could get these offerings. 
Detroit also has 1,700 urban gardens and farms. So we're trying to connect and make a bridge between the food that is being freshly produced and distributing it in a functional and, and flavorful way. To learn more and pay a visit to Breadless and to try all the great healthy eating options they offer, go to eatbreadless.com. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com, and that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Detroit billionaire Dan Gilbert wants to see the federal government fund expanded mass transit around southeast Michigan. He made those comments yesterday at an event at the Townsend Hotel in Birmingham. He says doing so could help further the efforts of Detroit and the broader region to attract talent. Attending that event was Nick Manis, residential real estate and mortgage company reporter for Cranes Detroit Business. Good morning, Nick. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me on. This is not a new idea. I mean, just amongst my friends, we've talked about how mass transit would be great in this area. Yeah, I mean, you know, the idea of of mass transit in Metro Detroit dates back a century or something. So, no, far far from new. But, you know, certainly, uh, you know, Dan Gilbert is now uh, offering some vocal support. You know, uh, Nick, uh, Gilbert mentioned the importance of transit and attracting younger generations who often prefer not to own cars because, you know, forever, I believe the big three were not really in favor of mass transit because, you know, we're Motown and they wanted folks to buy their cars. But does the big three have to come to grips now that young people have kind of flipped the script and would rather have good mass transit opportunities rather than owning a car? You know, I don't I don't think it's necessarily an either or, um, you know look no further than New York City where, you know, there's very robust mass transit, but, you know, they, they still have traffic jams every single day. Um, so, you know, I, th- I, you know, certainly I think that, you know, it's largely agreed that, that, that Metro Detroit needs better transit than what it has, what exactly that looks like. You know, I, I don't think we're going to all of a sudden start uh, digging under Woodward Avenue and building a uh, a massive subway, the, the likes of what we see in, in New York City and some other places. But, you know, certainly there are opportunities to to create more robust mass transit around the region. And, you know, I think that's probably more what, what Dan and some others have in mind at this point. Uh, ridership on the Q line, Nick, uh, a 6.6 mile loop, if people don't know, between Congress Street downtown and the West Grand Boulevard in this area, New Center, is increasing. So people are using that more? Yeah. The, so the, the, num- the numbers that the Q line has put out though, uh, has, has shown increasing ridership. Uh, one thing to keep in mind there is that uh, it's a free service, so it's, it's heavily subsidized. Um, and, you know, certainly having a free service to, uh, to to move people up and down Woodward Avenue throughout Detroit is uh, is of some benefit. Um, so, you know, that's uh, that has been seeing increases. You know, if, if they were to start charging for it, would that uh, would would that, uh, you know, continue? I, I don't know. You know, critics really have pointed out that the existing transportation systems in southeast Michigan, they kind of fall short of providing the necessary mass transit that the region requires. So did did Dan talk about how we would move towards a more unified transit infrastructure? So, so, you know, I want to be very clear. You know, I I wouldn't say that Dan necessarily offered any kind of, of vision for this. You know, I think you know, in some ways, this might have been more of an off-the-cuff uh, uh-huh. uh, remarks. Um, 
you, you know, basically, as, as you pointed out at the start, he was talking, a big theme of his, his talk yesterday was on the need to attract and retain more talent in Metro Detroit. And at one point, he mentioned that, that expanded mass transit could be a part of that. So, you know, I don't think he has any, you know, grand plan or vision at this moment. Um, you know, obviously, Dan is an influential guy. And, uh, and, you know, when he says things like that, it carries some weight. You know, I think what remains to be seen is whether he, you know, now offers more financial or political capital to to get something done. Well, that's what I was going to say. When he sort of sets his mind to something, we see all the fruits of that downtown and maybe perhaps just putting this out there. Now we're talking about it sort of it gets at least the conversation going, Nick. Yeah, I think that's, you know, that that's certainly something that he probably has in mind. Um, and, you know, certainly we've seen it, you know, play out, uh, you know, in downtown Detroit with, with his vision there. Um, you know, I think what remains to be seen, it, well, you know, in, we've seen it sometimes in, in broader policy issues as well. I mean, you know, look no further than uh, than some of the uh, large-scale incentives that he sought uh, to, to be created uh, a few years back in the legislature, and, and that happened. He was also, you know, something of an architect of the, uh, the auto insurance reform that we saw a few years ago. So, you know, certainly when, you know, when he speaks, folks in Lansing and around the state do listen. So we'll, we'll see. We're speaking with Nick Manis. He's a residential real estate mortgage company reporter for Cranes Detroit Business. Nick, um, the, the building that uh, Dan Gilbert is building on the Hudson site, did he talk about any, any tenants that may be coming to the building? He, he did not. Um, and, uh, and we're, we're not aware of any at this point. Um, you know, he did talk about, he did kind of list a, a laundry list of, of retail tenants in the, the, the greater downtown area that his real estate firm Bedrock is, uh, is attracting. Um, you know, he said that they're still having discussions with Apple about opening a store, but, uh, but n- nothing specific for, uh, for the Hudson site yet. Uh, Nick, as residential real estate reporter, what are your thoughts on the home prices in Metro Detroit, all-time high in September and up 6.7% from the year earlier? We spoke with David Hall at 635 about that. If you want to go to The Great Voice and listen to that, you can. But, Nick, what are your thoughts on that? Sure. So, yeah, um, you know, as, uh, as I reported earlier this week, uh, we we saw in the, the, the monthly case Shiller report, which is a, a monthly gauge of of home prices, uh, Metro Detroit took the, the top spot for fast-growing home prices in uh, in the country, at least in the 20 largest uh, metro regions in the country. Um, you know, that's uh, you know th- that's a positive and a negative, depending on your perspective. It's uh, it's a positive if you're somebody trying to to sell a home right now, you're you know likely to fetch a a higher price, but uh, but it's a negative if you're somebody in the market to buy a home right now. You know, prices are going up and as I'm sure David attested to, you know, there's, you know, increased uh, elevated mortgage rates right now. So, you know, all of that creates uh, creates challenges for, for buyers. The other part of that is that while we do have the fastest growing home prices, at least we did in the month of September, um, you know, Metro Detroit still has very low home prices compared to pretty much every other major metro. And, uh, and prices have appreciated the least of any other major metro in the uh, in the country. So, you know, prices are on the rise, but we're a long ways from uh, from pretty much every other big metro. 
And Nick, before I let you go, I got to ask you this question about uh, Dan Gilbert, um, the the Mavericks owner, uh, Mark Cuban. You know, he sold part of his Dallas Mavericks franchise, lending speculation he might run for political office. Was Gilbert asked about any uh, potential Gilbert uh, for president? Yeah, <laughs> he he actually was asked about that, and uh, and his quip was uh, he has never considered politics. He likes to get things done. <laughs> Well, well, yeah, I, I understand. I don't think we're going to be seeing any Gilbert for president signs anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Nick Manis, residential real estate and mortgage company reporter for Cranes Detroit Business. Thank you so much. Have a great weekend. Hey, thank you so much. Have a great weekend, guys. Yeah, you're going to get things done. Uh, and and Dan, Dan to- certainly gets things done with all the research opportunities he yes. just recently announced, all the buildings down there. Um, plenty to come from Dan Gilbert, I'm sure, but not in the political arena his quote was i think you have to be 80 to run for president (laughs) (laughs) oh god all right coming up we'll be talking with uh, fox news radio correspondent and wjr contributor jessica rosenthal we'll get more into the debate that happened the great debate between the red and the blue states on uh, the uh, fox news channel we'll get that coming up when jr morning continues i'm the one i'm the only guy here that's a border state governor you're trolling folks and trying to find migrants to play political games, to try to get some news and attention so you can out Trump Trump. And by the way, how's that going for you, Ron? You're down 41 points in your own home state. For an hour and a half Thursday night, Governor Ron DeSantis, uh, Florida, and Governor Gavin Newsom of California, they shouted and interrupted each other. They tried to leave an impression on Fox News viewers beyond their uh, slugfest and uh, we're going to get more into it now with jessica rosenthal she's fox news radio correspondent and wjr contributor and jessica thank you so much for being with us this morning thanks for having me so well i was watching it last night and it, it just seemed mm-hmm. a lot like uh it was desantis and hannity versus newsom and biden you i mean that that i, I don't even need to be on you just <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much have a great weekend right. <laughs> just kidding <laughs> You just really succinctly summed it up because you're right. Both of them were wearing these two hats, right? Like Newsom was a surrogate sort of for the Biden administration. He said he gave the president an A, that the economy is really working well, and he gave out some stats. And you guys just played one of those sound bites. But um, Newsom also said there, there's one thing we have in common. Um, neither of us will be the nominee in 2024. With that zinger, he, you know, you know, it was a put down an insult to DeSantis's campaign, but it was also confirmation, uh, more confirmation that Newsom himself is not running, um, despite this debate, despite his attempts to raise his national profile. And DeSantis over there was defending, you know, his record, his state, uh, Hannity, and the questions that Hannity was posing used data, used factual data, right? But it was, it, it definitely was. Um, more in favor, right, mm-hmm. of the state of Florida, the stats, right, were, were more uh, sort of pointing out some of California's issues and problems that they're that they're working on. So you're right, it, it was a, a national, there was this national tinge to it, right, and, and that's where the, you know, that's where people sort of staked out, you know, are you on Team DeSantis, are you Republican for 2024 on, on his side, or do you want President Biden? It, it was setting that up, and so you're right, I think that was it. Jessica, I questioned sort of what the point of the whole thing was. If DeSantis <laughs> is down 41 points in his own home state to Trump and Gavin Newsom continues said he's not running, what were we watching then? It's a really good question. I think I think Hannity and Newsom have this relationship. And 
it's very rare to see such a progressive figure and a, and a leader really in the Democratic Party go on a show like Sean Hannity, mm-hmm. right? So when they had their interview a few months ago, Hannity sort of set it up, right? Would you debate DeSantis, who, who might be the nominee? Um, and I think that was part of a, a you know, a, a plan, right, to showcase. And Sean said it in, in, the, in the title of the debate, red state versus blue state. Like, let's have that discussion almost as a side conversation to 2024's who's better. And you can deny, like Newsom can deny it all he wants, but, you know, the, the talk among analysts and pundits and people who follow this is that Newsom is setting himself up for possibly a 2028 run. And I guess at the end of the day, we don't know what's going to happen, right? I mean, Joe Biden is 81 years old. Um, Trump appears to be running away with, with polling, but polling also indicates that no one really wants a rematch. So I think there's some, I guess, subconscious, I don't know what to call it, uh, something in the, in the zeitgeist here, something underneath all of this that's saying, if, you know, if everybody wants a generational change, is, is this the generational change? Are these the leaders? And if not, if so, let's hear from them. And so I think that was sort of an effort, even if they're not running, you know, even if Newsom isn't running, to hear from both of these parties. And Newsom is, is basically setting himself up as a Biden surrogate. So you basically had almost like, almost what felt like a vice presidential debate, possibly, mm-hmm. or, you know, like something, yeah. something less than a little bit presidential. But although we, we, again, I can't say that, right? DeSantis very well could become president. We just don't know. And, and if so many people don't want Trump and Biden, then maybe it was maybe this was worth it. Um, I don't know. It was certainly entertaining. Uh, we're speaking with Jessica Rosenthal, Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor. You know, uh, Jessica, in the three Republican debates, uh, DeSantis seemed like he was kind of struggling to make Awkward. any type of Im- impression. He seems like he's a little bit more feistier with this debate. Maybe he needs to take some of this into the, the next debate with his Republican counterpart. I feel like you should be an analyst because I've read I've read that exact same um, I guess analysis uh, from from others that DeSantis seemed more comfortable. I, it might have been because of the framing of the questions, right, and mm-hmm. and the showcasing of California's issues and problems. And I'm a lifelong California girl. Uh, I you know I, I was following that all of that closely, um, and so maybe that was maybe that was a little bit a, a part of, of why DeSantis maybe seemed more comfortable. Maybe there was no audience also. Maybe it was also DeSantis was battling a Democrat and not a fellow Republican where you feel like maybe you have to walk a different line. I don't know. It'll be, it would be an interesting question to ask him, but um, you're right. I, it did seem, he did seem a little bit more comfortable on that stage calling out um, with, you know, with the help of Hannity's questions. California's issues and problems, those, those are real problems. And Newsom came back, you know, Newsom, you know, pivoted. Um, and some might say he did, pivoted well, some might say he didn't. That's for others to decide. But with every question, Newsom would say, well, you know, actually on crime, um, you know, Florida has cities with, with higher murder rates specifically. So he would always take the data and say what, and he would do a well actually um, to every data point that Hannity threw up. Uh, so that was Newsom's sort of tactic. It's up to others if it worked or not. Uh, Jessica, Nikki Haley still trails Trump by by large margins for this uh, presidential race, but she is getting yeah. big donors, and Trump is taking notice because he sort of is poo-pooing the big money she just got. 
Yeah. I think what's happening is people are sort of, it seems like the, the big money donors, right? And you're referencing the, the Coke Network, the right. Americans for Prosperity PAC, um, which is, I mean, that's millions right there. And that's door knocking. You know, that's campaigning in Iowa for the next six weeks uh, to help Nikki Haley. So we're, we're absolutely going to see, we're absolutely going to see her benefit from that. But you're, you're right. It's almost like, what, what is that? Is it a battle for second place? Is it a willingness to spend money? to be second place? Are these donors seeing something, a possibility here, a path? And Nikki Haley's campaign will tell you there's absolutely a path here because um, Trump voters might be open, you know, primary Republican voters might be open to somebody else, depending on what happens. And you might look at, your, you might look at the polling numbers and say, gosh, Trump is so far ahead. Like, what are they talking about? Um, and Trump himself has said, stop it. I'm going to be the nominee. But six weeks is a lot of time, actually, in politics. A lot can happen. And Trump is also facing many legal challenges. Those only seem to be boosting his poll numbers. But, you know, this is, this is a really uh, interesting, tenuous time when you have people willing to throw millions of dollars at somebody to be second place. They must be seeing something or willing to commit to something that they see in those numbers and that they see in Trump. Jessica, a bottom line, I mean, was there a winner between Newsom and DeSantis last night, or was the winner uh, – the Sean Hannity show trying to get ratings. <laughs> well, somebody actually, a few people on social media said, actually, Donald Trump won yet another debate he didn't attend. <laughs> I, I don't know if, uh, if I agree with that or not. But, uh, you know, suffice it to say, I don't think there was a clear winner. I think if anything, I think you guys might agree with this. I think everybody might agree with this. It, it just, you watch that debate like you watch a football game, right? Mm-hmm. You're rooting for one side to make the point that you want. I'm not sure it swayed anybody. I'm not sure it changed anybody's opinion. It might have just been one of those things that solidified you, puts you more solidly in your camp, and maybe was something to root for if you agreed with one man or another. Or just some entertainment. Yeah. There were some singers. (laughs) All right. Jessica Rosenthal, Fox News radio correspondent, WJR contributor. Thank you so much for going into the weeds with us on this uh, great debate between the blue state and the red state. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Uh, will we see more of this, Jamie? Probably. In the, in the future? <laughs> Probably. You know, and if the ratings were good last night, will Sean try to get Nikki Haley in with somebody? Or, well, you just you said know? it. If the ratings were good, then yes. Oh. <laughs> As we go okay. on in this presidential race that, you know, we still have a year of this, Lloyd. We do. Uh, we're going to take a break. Come right back at 749. Marie Osborne will be here, senior news analyst. And uh, she's going to talk about this national data breach at a company hired by Corwell Health that has impacted the health information of roughly a million patients in southeast Michigan. You're going to want to hear more about this, and we'll have it for you coming up right after this on JR Morning. Listen in during the 8 o'clock hour. You could win tickets to see Amadeus Electric Quartet in concert on December 22nd at Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. Experience an enchanting evening featuring Amadeus, the internationally acclaimed electric quartet. Amadeus, known as the uncontested leader of Romania's classical crossover music genre and is renowned for their instrumental arrangements of classical pop and rock classics. So listen uh, in the 8 o'clock hour and you can win tickets to the December 22nd concert at Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. All right, that will be in our 8 o'clock hour. For now, let's talk about cybersecurity and a breach that affected 8.5 million people nationally 
And that includes people here in Michigan. The breach involves one of the biggest health care systems in the state. WJR senior news analyst Marie Osborne has a look at what this massive data breach may mean to you. Good morning, Marie. And hi, Jamie. This breach went undetected for more than two months, and that's very concerning. More than a million Michiganders were affected by this breach at WellTalk Incorporated. That's a company contracted to provide communication services for Corwell Health and Priority Health, an insurance plan owned by Corwell. The compromised data includes names, dates of birth, email addresses, phone numbers, medical diagnoses, health insurance information, and that all-important social security numbers, those were breached too. This occurred on May 30th, but it wasn't until August 11th after the company had hired a third-party cybersecurity specialist, and that was when the breach was discovered. Cybersecurity attacks are growing in the healthcare industry. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services reports that data breaches among healthcare organizations more than doubled from 2019 to 21, and in 2022, at least 28.5 million healthcare records were breached. And of course, there's been several here in Michigan that we've talked about before. A ransomware attack took down the computer network at McLaren's 14 Michigan hospitals late in August and early September. And in late August, the University of Michigan shut down its campus computer network after a hacker there got access to the personal information on a wide variety of people who had interacted with the university, including medical patients. And Corwell has sent letters out to the affected patients and offered a year of credit monitoring. And Jamie and Lloyd experts are saying people definitely need to take advantage of that one year of credit monitoring. Wow. That is, how did, Marie, I don't know, do you know how the breach uh, went undetected for such a long period of time? Well, that's, you know, the million dollar, I mean, it's bad enough that it happened. Yeah. These things happen. Again, it was with this third party, this other company that they had hired to provide services for Corwell Health. But why it went undetected is sort of a mystery. Um, I'm sure that's part of their investigation into all of this and and what they're going to do in the future to prevent this from happening again. I think it shows the vulnerability of hospital systems because this is not the first time this has happened, and it seems like it continues to happen. Oh, absolutely. I mean, we just rattled off here all these uh, U of M and uh, McLaren Hospital. I mean, these are not small-time organizations that don't have the latest in technology. These are the premier health centers in the in the state and they were vulnerable to this and the fact that there are millions that um the uh the u.s department of health and human services says that 28 and a half million records were breached last year that's pretty scary now a lot of critics are saying hospitals really need to make security an absolute top priority things like having two-step authentication would be helpful, and a lot of places, of course, have that. Um, they need to identify weak spots and risks, and they need to put multiple layers of controls uh, that can interrupt an attack once it happens. In other words, not just the the preventative stuff, but actually have something in place that once a, a, a breach is detected, it can stop it. These things all have to start happening. Yeah, I think hospitals need to up their security for sure because it continues 
to happen. Marie Osborne, thank you so much for joining us this morning and have a great weekend. You too, guys. Lloyd, there's a big game yes, in Indianapolis is. on Saturday. Just a little bit. Uh, yeah, Wolverines kinda. playing Iowa, Big Ten Championship. They're 23-point favorites. Uh, did you see this in the Detroit News that a man, an Oakland County lawyer, is suing Benson in a bid to keep the Go Blue vanity plate? <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So Joseph Harding of Beverly Hills filed lawsuit in the Michigan Court of Claims just before Thanksgiving, claiming that Benson's office violated state law when it assigned the plate with the University of Michigan cheer to a different driver a month before his deadline to renew it. So he goes in there and somebody else has it. He's upset. Yep. Yeah. So I'm sure he wishes he had it. I don't know if he's going to Indianapolis, but there's a suit now. Benson has not responded. They're unsure. John Doe is all the name of the other driver in this case. But, yeah, he wants that go blue. Wow. You know, listen, uh, what what they always say, you snooze, you lose. But, (laughs) I mean, you know. Well, he says he was before the deadline. He has bachelor's and law degrees from University of Michigan. And so he wants that go blue back. Well, you know, he he had it. He wants it. Uh, It's. It's a, it's actually a good story. Has Benson said anything about it? Has she responded? No, to it? the Detroit News has not been able to confirm if the Secretary of State's office made the switch. Uh, also, I want to tell you about this story. Donations are pouring in at this beloved Christmas charity after smoke damage from a fire stymied plans for the delivery of wrapped gifts for thousands of children in West Michigan. Santa Claus Girls of Kent County has been going door to door with gifts for more than a century in the Grand Rapids area, delighting families that are struggling during the holidays. But all the volunteer group has been scrambling since the f- a fire last week struck a building uh, in Walker where the Santa Claus girls wrapped and stores their gift. Now, the the gifts were all packaged, ready to go. They didn't burn up, but smoke. Oh, so, so they're, they're contaminated. Unusable. Yeah, so they're, they're contaminated now. Um, you know, it's uh, it you could smell it's They say it smells like a bonfire. So. But the holiday, though, isn't lost altogether. Santa Claus girls will instead deliver gift cards for 8,500 children to be used at Meyer. Uh, and the uh, president of the of the charity says that they wouldn't disclose how much each family will receive. But they said, come heck or high water, these kids are going to have some kind of Christmas from us. Well, there's a lot of charitable people around this time of year. So I yes. think especially in that area, or even if you're listening right now and you want to donate, I'm sure people can do that santa claus girls of kent county is what they're called and uh wow that's amazing i'm so happy that they're still able to and the the insurance will cover that that money yes so well coming up we're gonna talk about the news of the day at 805 and you're gonna be able to win those tickets for amadeus electric quartet in concert december 22nd at the emerald theater in mount clemens so we're gonna do all of that when we return to jr morning on 760 WJR. Well, the U.S. Senate race in Michigan is getting even more crowded. Gross Point Park businessman Sandy Pensler is launching his second campaign for the Republican nomination, joining a crowded field competing for that open seat. He announced it in a video. He also ran in 2018. He says he's trying to take the Senate back from, quote, the morons, he said in an interview (laughs) with the Detroit News. That's a reference to politicians who don't use basic common sense and basic morality to guide their decisions. 
Now, he's 67 years old. He'll be able to self-fund his campaign. He's done so in the past. He's the founder of Pensler Capital Corporation, a private investment firm that owns four manufacturing plants. Now, he joins a Republican field that includes former U.S. Representative Mike Rogers of Brighton and Peter Meyer of Grand Rapids and former Detroit Police Chief James Craig of Detroit, among others. In 2018, Lloyd, he spent $5 million of his own money in the bid for the U.S. Senate, but lost the GOP primary to John James, who, of course, is in Washington. He lost by nine percentage points to him and Donald Trump. Uh, endorsed James, and that was the downfall of Pensler. But he's back, and he said again he wants to take wow. it back from the morons. <laughs> wow. Okay. All right. Well, you know, it's getting more and more crowded. We'll see if anyone else wants to jump in. Who knows before uh, the election happens. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a series of bills into law that aim to expand voting rights in the state from increasing opportunities for people to register to vote to improving efficiency on election night. She signed the 23 bills in Detroit yesterday, a city that was the center of voter rights controversy in November of 2020 at the NAACP Detroit branch. That's where she signed those bills, an organization that has a rich history of being on the front lines of voting rights. Whitmer explained the choice of why she signed the bills there. When you think about you know, communities that have historically had barriers put in front of them, young voters, voters of color, um, voters who, who struggle to make ends meet and can't take time off. Now they've got nine days to vote before an election. The bills that are now laws address our artificial intelligence and misinformation. Another highlight was pre-registering 16-year-olds to vote. So when they turn 18, they will automatically be registered. All righty. Well, you know, there's a huge game. Saturday is it? Is it in Indianapolis, the 12 and 0 Michigan Wolverines taking oh. on the 10 and 2 Iowa Hawkeyes Big Ten Championship game, Lucas Oil Stadium. Kickoff is scheduled for eight o'clock. Um, you know the Wolverines are coming off that big 30 to 24 win over Ohio State. Jim Harbaugh is returning to the sidelines. He can coach his team. I'm just waiting for this awkward trophy ceremony <laughs> when Tony Petiti of the Big Ten has to hand something to Jim Harbaugh oh, when they've yeah. had this contentious sort of fall over mm. what's going on with the sign stealing. I know that a lot of people were, you know, excited. I know the Michigan players were to see Cade McNamara, yes. their old teammate. He will not be the quarterback of the Hawkeyes because he is injured. And I don't think there's any love lost between Cade McNamara and the Wolverines. Cause listen to what he said on a podcast recently. Well, I think this week specifically, I'm not just getting Deacon ready. I'm getting the entire team as much okay. as I can, because I mean, I know so much about that other team. Yeah. That from a defensive standpoint, from an offensive standpoint, I'm just doing everything I possibly can from an entire team standpoint to just let these guys know everything that I possibly know. Keep that he can't say name Michigan. out of your mouth. He just has to say that other team. <laughs> that other team. He's clearly aggrieved by whatever happened, you know, when J.J. McCarthy became the quarterback and he had to leave. The Hawkeyes have been offensively challenged all season. Yeah. Let's just say that. So Michigan is 23-point favorite. So all those Wolverines out there, I think you're going to have a great Saturday. You know who's not having a great November? Uh-huh. I can bet you I can tell you. The Pistons. No win November for those guys. They lost to the New York Knicks, 118-112. That's a franchise record 16th consecutive loss. They completed the win this November, having not won a game since a victory over Chicago on October 28th. And, Lloyd, that's when they were 2-1. and one. Oh, Yeah, 
Okay. So the struggle is real. They host the Cleveland Cavaliers Saturday at Little Caesars Arena. And our Lions are in New Orleans. The Lions are in New Orleans, and they're trying to bounce back from whatever happened there on Thanksgiving <laughs> against the Packers. Whatever. Uh, but, you know, they're still one of the best teams. they got to keep pace, though, they with do. these Eagles and Niners and Cowboys won, of course. So they got to win in New Orleans. And no interception. How about protect the football? Hello. Uh, Jared Goff had the three interception game, and he followed that up with the three um, fumble game. So let's just not do that anymore. How about that? <laughs> you sound like you, boy. Let me tell you, Jamie really sounds like a parent. Let's just not do that anymore. That's how <laughs> parents would tell the kids when they would act up. Listen, the man who Mike Tyson pummeled during a wild fight on a plane last year, he's now demanding that the boxer pay him about a half a million dollars to avoid a future lawsuit. But the boxers. Uh, attorney Alex Spiro is adamant that the whole thing is just a shakedown and no payments will be forthcoming. Now, a lawyer for Melvin Townsend, who is the punch victim, made the demands clear in a pre-litigation letter sent to Spiro earlier this week. In the document, the letter uh, to the lawyer said that Tyson um, could have used other remedies to defuse the situation on the April 2022 JetBlue flight. But instead, he chose physical violence and viciously assaulted Townsend. And when you look at that video, though. Well, the video was this guy was just bugging and egging on Tyson and getting in his face. And then Tyson punched him. Well, no, he says they they were, you know, he was excited to see the boxer and that they were just discussing marijuana and no. psychedelic mushrooms. Not that I'm saying that he Tyson should punch anybody because he could really hurt someone. Oh, uh, yeah. Lethal but weapons that guy there. is not innocent either. Well, you know, he's been clear criminally. So, um, you know, this is just. Trying to get the loot now. It's all about the loot. Look, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but Airbnb, there have been some carbon monoxide deaths, 19 of them in the last 10 years, but the company still doesn't require detectors. Oh, no. In February 2014, Airbnb made a commitment that the company would require hosts to confirm that carbon monoxide detectors were installed in every listing by the end of the year, but that has fallen by the wayside. NBC News is reporting 19 deaths since 2013, then it that occurred in Airbnb properties. Now, this is all happened abroad. And Airbnb is saying with, you know, all of the different laws amongst the world, like we can't, it's hard to get one streamlined thing. But in this report, they're saying, well, then you take it upon yourselves to require the people that host to have carbon monoxide detectors in the houses. Um, Are they required to have fire detectors in the houses? I'm not sure. Yeah, if you're going to have, if you have fire detectors in the houses, you need to have carbon monoxide detectors as well. Now, just, you know, check your surroundings when you get there, but this all happened abroad. Just want to mention that. Okay. All right. So do you guys want to go see Amadeus Electric Quartet? Oh, well, I wish I could, but we're not eligible. You're not eligible to Sorry. win, Lloyd. Nope. But other people listening are. So be caller 9 at 1-800-859-0WJR, that's 0957, to win a pair of tickets to see Amadeus Electric Quartet in concert on December 22nd. That's at the Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. So call if you'd like to win. And also for a bonus chance, we're going to give you one more chance, you can text the keyword EMERALD to 800-859-0957. We've been giving away a lot of tickets to a lot of things this holiday season. Yes, and people are going to be enjoying themselves during this holiday season, and we're just happy that you're doing so. Coming up.
at 819. Ford's uh, 2024 trend report delves into artificial intelligence, sustainability, work-life balance, and more, offering invaluable insights to navigate the future. We'll be speaking with Jennifer Brace. She's the chief futurist at Ford Motor Company. That's coming up next on JR Morning. Congratulations are in order for Dennis in Harrison. He wins the Amadeus Electric Quartet tickets for that's December 22nd at the Emerald Theater in Mount Clemens. And you still have a chance to win a bonus chance, if you will. Text the keyword Emerald to 800-859-0957 and you could join Dennis in Harrison on December 22nd. Well, Jamie, uh, Ford's 2024 trend report serves as uh, sort of like a wake-up call for a world in flux, revealing a seismic shift in how people prioritize their lives from prioritizing self-care to the impact of artificial intelligence on jobs. The report offers a fascinating glimpse into the future and the emerging trends that will shape it. You know, each year Ford focuses on global trends to gain insight into evolving consumer behavior, what the company needs to understand about these behaviors and how to use the learnings to inform future strategies for engaging with them. And joining us to talk more about this report is Jennifer Brace. She is chief futurist at Ford Motor Company. Jennifer, good morning. Hi, how are you? I'm great this morning. You know, the the report uh, highlights the shift where people are actively shaping their futures rather than like fixating on the past. So talk about some of the most significant findings that stood out to you regarding the transformation the transformation in people's mindsets and actions. Sure, yeah. So not a surprise right that over the past few years we've seen a lot of signals that people have been feeling overwhelmed and kind of you know like they don't have a lot of control over what's happening in the world. So this year, what we saw was a shift um, going from this, you know, kind of being really stressed out and it hasn't gone away. Let's be honest. We're all still kind of stressed out about what's happening. But um, but what we're really seeing is people focusing inward and focusing on the things that they can control, looking to prioritize their personal um, well-being. And we some of the surprising things were that they were they were willing to prioritize that over things that would have been a traditional like marker of success, like advancement at work, for example, saying that, you know, a job that increases my stress really just isn't worth it. And one of the most surprising stats that I saw was uh, 52% of employed people said that they would be willing to take a 20% pay cut to improve their quality of life. Wow. I I see that, especially on social media, people talking mm-hmm. about it and saying, you know, my career is not as important as my mental health, my family, and mm-hmm. staying inward. Yeah. Yeah, you know, we see it too with um, with parents. We asked a, a question to parents about uh, prioritizing mental health over academic success. And 83% of parents said that mental health was more important for their children than academic success. You know, and looking at this report, there's this disparity between people's beliefs regarding AI and its mm-hmm. impact on, on jobs, you know. And why do you yeah. think there's this discrepancy between individuals who feel that AI is going to cause job loss for others, but not necessarily for them? Yeah, I, you know, I kind of love it when we get data that shows uh, some contradictions in it or yeah. maybe some lack of of personal reflection. Yeah, so we had 68% of people saying that they're worried about AI impacting job loss for others. 
but only 39% thought it might impact themselves. So this idea that it's going to happen to other people, not to me, um, which I feel is often a bit short-sighted. Um, I think it, it forces us all to kind of take a look at, you know, how might these impacts, uh, you know, have some uh, some type of influence on our life moving forward. And I think it's an important question to be to be looking at right now. Um, but yeah, people tend to, you know, it, it's not uncommon, right, for people to think it's going to happen to others, but maybe not to myself. Uh, 60% agree that AI will be an essential part of daily lives by 2035. And I think a lot of people don't think like it's already here. I mean, Siri or those emails when we start to write an email and it finishes the sentence for you. I mean, it's here. Mm -hmm. You're so right. You're so right. I know. I thought that number was surprisingly low um, because I think you're right that people don't realize how often they're already using it in day-to-day life. We think of sometimes when you say the word AI, I think the image that comes to mind is a robot, um, but the truth is it, it's it's software, right? It, it's smart software that's, that's anticipating our needs, and, and we do get it throughout our life already. In terms of sustainability, you say, do as I say, not as I do, and you have some <laughs> facts that back that up. That's right. That's right. This is something that we call the green paradox, and it's it's something that we've seen for, for years, quite frankly, this idea that you know, eight and 10 or seven and 10 people are saying that they are actively fighting climate change. They're making sustainable choices. Um, but if you dig really just, just a tiny bit deeper, um, the majority are saying that they're only willing to make a change if the inconvenience to them is small or non-existent. So in other words, people say, yeah, I know it's important. I want to do my part, but I'm really only going to do it if it's easy. It's got to be easy. It's got to fit into my life. It's got to be something that isn't really making a really big change for me. We're speaking with Jennifer Brace. She's chief futurist at Ford Motor Company. And Jennifer, you know, the the changing perception of family and the rising emphasis on mental health for children's preparation for adulthood, a couple of uh, insights that I saw in that report. How do you envision these shifts impacting social, societal norms, rather, uh, and expectations related to family structures and child development? Sure. So we do see a lot of importance being placed on mental health. When we ask about uh, the importance of that or the stress that comes with it, we do see younger generations much more likely to say that mental health is of a concern for them. So I expect we're going to continue to see it. We're going to see it in the schools. We're going to see it in the way that parents are, um, you know, are taking care of their family and their children. Um, I would expect, too, moving forward, it's going to be a stronger request when it comes to benefits you know, and at companies and at work. So it's, it continues to be part of the conversation and particularly with our younger generations, it's becoming normalized to talk about it. Jennifer, you as the futurist, the chief futurist, (laughs) you look into numbers all the time. What do these Mm -hmm. numbers say to you? What is your takeaway from this report moving into 2024? Moving into 2024, so I see, I actually saw some optimism here where people were feeling optimistic about the future, optimistic about their ability to to focus inward. Again, it's, it's kind of accepting that the world is outside of their control and it feels a little chaotic and unpredictable. But what people can focus on is themselves, their mental health, their physical health, and, and trying to kind of take hold of that so that, um, so that they can have a more, you know, comfortable future or at least know that they are focusing on the right things. Uh, and then, you know, bringing in kind of the, the AI side, they are looking to technologies and, and, and somewhat hopeful about the, the potential of that to help, whether it's taking some burden off them 
or, um, you know, or integrate it into their lives in ways that maybe they haven't even considered. Jennifer Brace, uh, Chief Futurist at Ford Motor Company. Very interesting information, not only for uh, families, but also for employees and employers as well. So have a great weekend. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, you too. You can find the information at FordTrends.com. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. Um, Coming up, we're going to talk about the Michigan State Spartans with the Chief Futurist, if you will, of the Spartans, (laughs) Tom Izzo. Uh, They had five guys in double figures as Michigan State used a big first half to beat Georgia Southern uh, 86-55. So we're going to talk to him about what went right. And you know he always has some things that this team can improve on. So we're going to talk to Tom. And then after that, we're going to talk about the annual Noel night. That's at 849, uh, one of the most magical nights in the city, Lloyd. So a lot coming up still. Noel, oh, Noel. Perfect. <laughs> Stick with us after the break. The Michigan State Spartans held Georgia Southern to 11 first-half points en route to an 86-55 win on Tuesday. Let's bring in Tom Izzo, the head coach of the team, and WJR senior sports analyst Steve Courtney. Let's break it all down, guys. All right, Jamie. Good morning to you. Hello again, everyone. This conversation with Magnum T.I., Brought to you by the hardworking men and women at Bill Brown Ford. Forward down the field. Yes, the W's are stacking up. Winged wheelers back on the winning side of things last night. My good friend Matt Garko and his team are stacking wins each and every day. Drive with the champions at Bill Brown Ford. Shop their True View inventory at BillBrownFord.com today. Yeah, Tuesday night at the Breslin Center, your Spartans playing host to the Eagles of Georgia Southern. A suffocating first half of defense put on by the Spartans, holding Georgia Southern to 34% shooting in the first half. There was a lineup change. The sophomore Trey Holloman gets the start at point guard, responds with a career-best 10 assists to go along with seven points. A.J. Hogard comes off the bench, adding 12 points. Let's get the thoughts of Coach Izzo himself. How are you, sir? Well, Jamie, Lloyd, Steve, how are you guys? It's... uh... Not the greatest weather up here. How's it down in Detroit? Uh, we were like, just saying it looks like Gotham City ugly. out there. <laughs> ugly. Well, well, that's good to know. So <laughs> Don't come down there. This would uh, yeah, this would be a uh, this would be a speedo day in Iron Mountain, though. <laughs> yeah, it would be. And uh, you know, the good news is uh, we're uh, we're all in the same boat here, but. Uh, you know what we played uh you know i mean the competition wasn't as good i mean let's let's be real in our in our minds we played the second third fifth best team in the country in tennessee arizona and duke and uh, at the time and then uh you know the number 17 jmu so this was a step down um charlie uh henry who's from our state um really good guy and he's building a program there and he's got some talent he's just in fact, I just got up the phone with him this morning, just trying to figure out how to put it all together. So we don't look at this as any uh, monumental win, but uh, we look at it as, you know, shot a little better, defense is better. Um, we're going to start shooting it better. I mean, it's it's gradually the last four games have been better than the first three, and so we're, we're making some progress, but uh, not where we need to be or want to be yet, and Thank God we've got this week to prepare for Wisconsin, which I think will help us. 
I, I was just going to say that's got to be a welcome rest because you guys have been going nonstop since the beginning of the season. Yeah, yeah we talked about that as a staff too. You know, I mean, it, geez, and then then you know we get another week in between games next week, but it's finals week. So I mean, you know, <laughs> those uh, other than Steve, I know the the rest of us went to college. <laughs> and studied, but, uh, you know. Uh, I know Steve, he didn't study, so uh, it wasn't because he didn't have to, because he couldn't, but uh, it was, uh, so that's a tough week too, but you, you're right, this this early season stuff for everybody, I mean, I'm sure Juwan feels this way, I mean, it's, we're all trying to play better teams, you get in these tournaments of some kind, you, you play who you play, but it is taxing in a short period of time, and uh so, you know, I mean, that's not our excuse because we started out, but you should start out better than we did. But, uh, you know, those shots are going to fall, guys. And when he does, uh, we're going to go from, a, I think, a good team to a really good team. And that's that's what I'm banking on, and that's what I'm looking forward to. We had a great practice yesterday. Um, we'll go shorter today, and then we'll start game prep for Wisconsin. So, uh important uh, time for us right now coach you you mentioned i think I, I read somewhere that you mentioned that the team needs to put two consistent halves together not just perform well in one right. so right. I, how are you right. working with the players to to make sure they maintain that high level of performance throughout the entirety of the game especially in these highly competitive matches yeah yeah you know and and i think more in the highly competitive like this game they scored 11 points the first half we never held a team to 11 some was our defense. Some was they missed some shots too. But uh, the second half, you know, I, it's hard to maintain that when you're 35 up. I mean, I, I am a realist somewhere uh-huh. in this body. <laughs> um, but I'm more concerned with, you know, like against Duke, uh, you know, it's there's five minutes left to go in the first half and the game is uh, it's 19-18. And then we just go on a little spurt and uh, a negative. Then they... You know, then we go on a positive spurt, we cut it to two or three, and then we just, you know, we're not maintaining. And, and the same happened with Arizona, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's that's what we're how – how are we trying to correct it? If if I had that answer, it wouldn't be a problem. So as you can see, I'm not perfect either. I'm, I'm trying to figure out, you know, how we do a better job in pushing some buttons. And, you know, I mean, I, I think sometimes in the media we, we make a big deal about – you know, the, the Hogart, I, I, I benched him. Uh, I guess you could say that, uh, you know, I, I look at it as I'm pushing buttons, you know, uh, I'm trying to get my, uh, I mean, my wife does it to me. So it's a different <laughs> to, to, to Hogart, you know, she, she doesn't like, she doesn't like when I don't take the garbage out. So she pushes buttons, you know, and, uh, so I'm pushing buttons to try to get things right. But in all fairness and honesty, um, if I didn't think um, that he's done it before, if I didn't think he could get it done, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be pushing buttons, and I, I know what he can do, and I'm. I, I think one of my jobs is to hold him to that standard, and so, you know, it's uh, it's all part of the process, especially this day and age where, you know, I think I think half these kids are. You don't know where they're at because of all the situations and all the things you're seeing now in football uh, around the country. You know, you've made mention, Tom, of, uh, you know, it's nice to get production from the young guys, Holloman and Fierce. Uh, but you've made it known that the veteran guys have got to step up. Malik Hall, uh, Jaden Nickens, AJ, 
Um, Is it built in as we're knocking on the door to the start of another Big Ten season that their intensity, uh, and they've been around, uh, will increase? You know, Steve, I'm not sure it's – like Jay Nakins, he he, he plays hard. He – um, you know, I mean, the guy's a 40% three-point shooter, and all of a sudden he was shooting 20. And now he's up a little bit more, and, uh, you know, and uh, we need to get him to the line more. He's got to be a little more consistent of getting rebounds and driving the ball. But, I mean, uh, you love Jay Nakins. I mean, he's, he's a 3 seven student. He does – he works on his game. He's down there working on it now. He, You know, he just – I mean, like I told you, I remember when John Smoltz went through a slump and couldn't throw a, a strike, you know? I mean, right. some of this stuff um, happens because of lack of work. That has got to be corrected. Some of it happens because it happens. Uh, that I got to fight through, live through, and, and, and believe that if you're a 40% career three-point shooter and you're in your junior year, it's going to come back. And, uh, you know, Jaden is that way. And, uh, you know, Malik, you know, coming off that injury, I mean, uh, you know, he missed uh, part of last year and never was really healthy. And then he missed five months of the summers, uh, you know, the fall or spring and summer. So, I mean, you know, plus we're going to get a score back inside in another week or two, a couple of weeks probably. And, and, and um, that is going to help us a little bit. So the key is our veterans do have to play well. I'm, I'm relying on, uh, you know, um, here we had, uh, you know, just to keep with the excuse-making machine, and I, I feel like I'm doing it, even though I'm not. Uh, you know, we know we had Tyson miss the game and then was not very good at Arizona. You know, I, I don't need much production to turn these couple-point losses into wins, or I don't need much, you know. I mean, can you imagine going – 23 of 41 from the line and one of 20 against JMU and losing by one. I mean, you know, you just say, Hey, if somebody made a free throw, you win the game and we're not talking about it. So trying to keep those things in perspective and uh, look out at the weather and say, uh, my team's better off than the weather right now in Detroit and Michigan and uh, East Lansing. And that's what I'm going to go by. Well, Coach, you begin Big Ten play with Wisconsin and then at Nebraska on Sunday. And then the game after that is supposed to be in downtown Detroit at LCA, number nine Baylor. That's on the 16th. But the Lions just got flexed to that exact time across the street at Ford Field. Yeah, I I think we're working on right now. um, I think we're working on changing that to an afternoon game. I mean, easier said than done. I I think the arena would do it. I don't know, you know, TV creates an issue there, but um, uh, I don't want to be going head to head with the Lions. I love what they're doing. And it sure would be nice if uh, we could get that thing moved to a two o'clock or something or three o'clock. And then you go right from there to the Lions game and uh, you and Lloyd and well, Steve be sleeping by eight o'clock. No, that Lions sounds game. like but the I mean, ideal two, day yeah. for my husband. Oh, that'd Spartan be a hell of a basketball. Day for you. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Well, get your husband uh, push the right buttons. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Coach, and of course Steve for joining us on this Friday. And don't go outside; just take a nap or something. Well, that if you insist. the advantage of basketball, guys. But Steve's taking a nap. He's got twenty <laughs> hours a day. But if. If, if you if you like my recruiting pitch on that, I'll give it to you. Um, it's 72 in every gym in America, whether you're in Hawaii or whether you're in Alaska. 
So weather doesn't bother me. I'm I'm the round ball sport, not the oblong sport. Weather bothers them unless you're with the Lions who are indoors. So we're gonna get keep getting better, guys. And uh, I know Lloyd, you and Jamie will keep getting better, and Steve will just uh, just kind of we'll hope you keep getting yeah. better. Just uh, happy. I'm just happy, Tom. You shared the fact that Jaden Nakins is a three seven student. I knew I had something in common with him. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Yeah. You did have that that four year combination, but uh, <laughs> addition, but uh, but we still love you, Steve. That's why we pick on you. And at me least appreciate your time as always. Tell me they pick on me because they love me, but I I'm not sure that's always true. <laughs> I'm not sure that's always true with you either, Steve. But, oh, uh, I don't know. We're gonna get it done, and you guys have a great weekend. You too, and, coach. Uh, I look All the forward best, to coach. talking to you next Monday, guys. All right. Thank you so much, Coach. We do love you. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about the annual Noel Night on JR Morning. Oh, wow. We're ready. I thought they were going to play Noel, the first Noel. <laughs> Are you ready for some Christmas caroling and glistening? Yes. Holiday lights, decorations, all of that. Well, they're among the many attractions on tap tomorrow when Detroit kicks off its 49th annual holiday celebration, Noel Night. And joining us on JR Mornings is Sue Mosey. She's executive director of Midtown Detroit Incorporated. And Sue, thanks for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. You know, with the uh, return of the 49th annual Noel Night, it's uh, really undoubtedly a cherished tradition here in Detroit. And uh, I know I've taken my kids. My kids are all grown now, but they, I've taken them before. How do you envision this year's event adding to the city's uh, festive spirit and the significance of keeping these traditions alive? Well, as you say, I mean, this is a longstanding tradition for a lot of families to come down here because they have the chance to not only visit the cultural institutions, but they have a chance to get also out into the Midtown neighborhood where there's all kinds of shops and restaurant options and, um, you know, all kinds of activities spread throughout this entire Woodward corridor footprint here. Uh So it's, you know, there's, there's a ton of arts and crafts activities, hands-on things for families. There's a lot of fantastic music performances everywhere from the cube over at Detroit Symphony to the uh, film theater auditorium over at the art museum to the public library auditorium. Um, So there's a lot of really just beautiful spaces that are very unique to all of these uh, institutions. Wayne state has about seven venues that are open that night, including the new Hillbury gateway um, theater project that they just completed this past year. So uh, I think a lot of new places for the public to explore. And places to visit Santa include the Charles A. Reich Museum, uh, Detroit Institute of Arts, the Public Library, the Symphony Orchestra. And Woodward will remain open, but there are shuttles to take families and people from place to place. Is that right? Yeah, this has been a, a, a pretty significant change in the footprint of the event ever since M1 Rail was built. Uh, we really have not been able to close Woodward, so we do have shuttles that take people around throughout the footprint um, in case there are folks. One is also ADA accessible, um, 
and help people really navigate if they find it too far to, and they want to go to a lot of different venues. So we've built that in. We still have the real popular Ice Scrapers Challenge between Wayne State and CCS students in front of the Art Museum as well, which is always super popular. And then the really big uh, CCS Student and Alumni Art Sale, which has been ongoing for all of the years that we've done Noel Night. And they have about 120, I think, student and alumni artists in that location. We also have major marketplaces at Woodward and Warren. Wayne State has a big one with Tech Town uh, at the Welcome Center. Uh, Majestic Theater Complex has Fleet Detroit, which is a big, huge vintage pop-up. I think about 30 or 40 vendors are there. Blick Art Supply has a ton of artists over there, the Detroit Artist Market. So lots of holiday sales opportunities here. So do you see that the longevity and the success of Noel Knight, 49 years, uh, is due to like this collaboration between you got local businesses and the cultural institutions and community organizations. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a win-win for everybody here. Um, and I think that um, because all of the spaces that are presenting uh, activities are so wildly different. You have big formal auditorium spaces. You have little shops like source booksellers or mongers, cheese, you know, like doing all kinds of interesting holiday-themed uh, activities as well. So people, if you like the big venues, you can find plenty there. If you just like to really find and explore some really interesting smaller shops, uh, you certainly have uh, plenty of opportunity to do that as well. We encourage people to come down here and eat. We have a lot of food trucks that will be down here at the Scarab Club and also at Woodward Warren. Tons of restaurants in Midtown, as you're probably aware. All of them will be open doing a lot of business. Um, lots of bars for people to go to after uh, the event is over. The event really runs in the cultural center between 5 and 9, and then it extends uh, till 10 o'clock throughout the rest of the Midtown neighborhood. Sue Mosley is executive director of Midtown Detroit Incorporated. Number 49 this year, Sue. Next year it'll be 50, and we expect it'll be even bigger. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for being with us. Uh, we are wrapping up. Uh, we made it. I'm sure Dad's happy. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure he's listening up north. Hopefully, we made him proud. But Lloyd, it was a pleasure it on this Friday. Always, always a pleasure. Have a great weekend. I'd like to remind everybody on Monday, the former mayor of Detroit, Kwame Kilpatrick, will be in studio speaking with us. He'll be talking about uh, his uh, new job as an executive director of a, a company, well, a nonprofit rather, in Tennessee that he has taken. Also, his ministry, also his restitution, uh, and we're just going to talk to him about a lot of things. What's going on with uh, him and his family? Well, he he's has, making news recently. Yes, he's still he has. in articles. We got to ask him that stuff. Absolutely, we will. And he has uh, a couple of new children as well—a son and a daughter—and a uh, new wife. And we're going to talk about all of that come Monday morning, eight o'clock hour on JR Morning. All right. Thank you so much, Lloyd. Uh, I thought we were done there, but turns out we're done right now. We'll see you on Monday.